in doing a little bit of research for a book I wrote about my grandpa's farm, I called the family that owned the farm, and it was the, uh, the he said, you know, it's interesting that you, you would call. He said, you see, my your grandfather owned, owned that farm, and you have a memory of it, and and my grandfather owned the farm before your grandfather owned the farm. And so my memories go way, way back. He said, I, wanna, he said, I remember your grandpa. He said, well, he was a storyteller. And, he, and, then he, and then the guy proceeded to tell me a story. He told me we were standing outside the barn. told me exactly where it was. And then he told a story. And he, and, and he said it was in, in 19, I think it was like 1956. He told the story of my grandpa. It was a lame joke that my grandpa always told. And while I was talking to the guy on the phone, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, my grandpa's been telling that story for 50 years. And it's not a very good story. Well, the story that we have before us today, it's a good story. It's the best of stories. And it's not just a story that's passed along the pastime humorously between people while they're throwing hay in the barn. This is a story for the ages. This is a story that God gave to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who gave it to messengers, who gave it to the church, who gave it to us. This is a story that God said, I want you to write this story down. This is one of the most dramatic, one of the most sensational, one of the most amazing stories that anyone has ever written or has ever... This is a story for the ages. And it's found in your Bible in Revelation chapter 1. And the verses are 9 through 20 today. And you're, if you're tracking with us, you know that what we're doing is we're actually just taking our preaching text right out of the book of Romans, a chunk at a time. Kind of not a paragraph, but a unit of thought at a time. And so if you stay with us week after week, and you should come to church every week and not every other week. If you come to every other week, you come to church every other week, then your soul is going to walk with a funny limp. You're not going to be quite right come every week and, and walk as the way God intended for it to be. And not only that, but then you'll be getting is a chunk at a time all the way through literally every phrase, every word of this wonderful book of Revelation. And this particular story is a picture of Jesus. So we had a picture of Jesus last week, if you recall, but now we have an even more vivid and amazing and glorious and awesome and shocking picture of Jesus. And I will just tell you before we read it, he is not what you sometimes think of a kind of a Mr. Rogers with a beard guy. Jesus is not like, you know, will you be my neighbor guy? He's not, he's not like that. You know, it's not, that's not, Mr. Rogers is a nice guy. I mean, I mean, but, he's, but, but, but the Jesus of popular culture, as we've often said, is way not the Jesus in the, the, in the text that we're going to read today. This is probably one of the two most amazing portraits of Jesus in the Bible. And the other one's in the same book in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, it's when Jesus Christ is returning in power and in great glory. And there's a picture of him there that's a description like this. There's this description, which parallels very clearly a description of Jesus in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. This is just such an amazing picture of Jesus. It's just such an, and it's in a narrative. It's like storyboard. If you're familiar with that idea, it's like, it's like a picture. It's like a story with different scenes, like a movie with different scenes. And so kind of the the best way I know for us to engage with this and to, and to, and for it to engage us and to help us 
in whatever it is that we're living through right now, this glorious picture of Jesus, this glorious portrait of Jesus, is to look at it and like to, to maybe to ask seven questions of this vision of the Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, it's just the best way I know is just to ask seven questions. And the first one is kind of like three questions together. And that is, who is John? Where is he and what is he doing? Look at in chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it's refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like a sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers, the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Okay, let's pray. Now, Lord, I I appeal uh, to you, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself and manifest yourself in a special way to every single heart in the room today, young and old, distracted and not distracted, tired and not tired, secular and sacred hearts that are hungry for you and hearts that are distracted with other things. Reveal yourself to show up in a special way and manifest yourself to their hearts as we make you known through this passage of Scripture that their lives would be transformed, that our lives would be transformed. Amen. Okay, so who is John? Where is he and what's he doing? We've talked about this before. John is John the Apostle. He's written other books of the Bible, right? The Gospel of John, the Epistles of John 1, 2, and 3. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ written by, given to John. This is the Apostle John, James and John, sons of Zebedee, grown-up fishermen, disciples of Christ. 
And where is he? As you know, the Bible says here, he is on the island of Patmos. He says, I'm both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was on the island that was called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's John the Apostle. He's writing, looking back the time that he was on the island of Patmos. The church tradition says he was exiled there, probably by Domitian. And now he's, so he's, he's confined to this island, and it's there that, that there he is, and, he, and, it, and the scriptures are, are going to say that it's on the Lord's day. He says immediately that he's brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience. And that's not just, those aren't just throwaway words. When he says those things, he's introducing major themes in Revelation. Kingdom is a major theme in the Bible. Kingdom is a major theme in Revelation. This is where it's all headed to the kingdom. It's all headed to the kingdom. Everything is ramping up toward the kingdom. This is what God is on the heart of Jesus today. That's what was on the heart of Jesus on earth. And that's what all God's people should care about. Kingdom of God. But he says the kingdom of God is not a human kingdom where we're like, want to kind of take over the government? No, no, no. We actually, the, the kingdom of God comes through people laying down their lives and, and then there's an alternative form of government that Jesus is going to be the king of. And so it's going to require patience and tribulation to get there. And this is obviously what Revelation teaches. Teaches the trajectory toward the kingdom, but there's going to be tribulation on the way, and it's going to require patience. How in the world do we get to kingdom and have the patience that we need if it means that we're going to have to suffer ill health, if it means that we're going to have to suffer pressure, prejudice, persecution, if it means that things are not going to work out the way we want to, if we don't get immediately married because we wanted to get immediately married or have a baby right away or don't have the job that we want or we're underemployed or we're unemployed or we have illness or we have trouble and the world is just full of things that we wish weren't that way. We're, we're alone when we really want to be together uh, with somebody else. We're going to have in this world tribulation. And the Bible doesn't kind of uh, soft-pedal that. This book about the kingdom is about getting there through tribulation and, and having patience. John, Jesus said it in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation. In Acts 14, verse 22, Through many tribulations we enter the what? You know what it says? The kingdom of God. By the way, that book of Acts starts with the kingdom. It ends with the kingdom. Bible begins implying a kingdom ends in a kingdom. The kingdom is a the key theme here. Now, you understand, so here's John, and who is he? He's uh, an apostle, and he's kind of the last remaining living apostle. According to church tradition, the other apostles, most of them have been martyred. Tortured, persecuted, martyred. It started early. James was John's brother. He dies in Acts chapter 12. It's recorded in Acts chapter 12 at the hands of Herod, his own brother. And then, not very far along in Acts, you have the stoning of Stephen. This is the way it's going to go now. Jesus said there would be tribulation when Jesus offers a kingdom, and then he goes and he does what? He dies. He's tortured and he dies. He goes through tribulation. James dies, and Stephen is publicly stoned. Thirty years before this, Paul was beheaded in Rome. And, and he says he's in the Spirit. John uses this phrase four times 
in Revelation, it's a unique example that he doesn't use it like Paul uses. When Paul uses the term in the Spirit, he's talking about the normal Christian life, walking and being a spiritual person. The way that John is using it in a different way, he uses it four times, and they kick off the four major movements of Revelation. There are four visions. Revelation is given in four visions. I believe that you can see this real clearly by wherever you see, I was in the Spirit, I was caught up in the Spirit. In other words, I was in, uh, you could could perhaps say, uh, so under the influence of the Holy Spirit, or so maybe you could say in a trance under the influence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to give, or an angel is going to give John a vision, and there are four different visions, and they all are initiated by this being caught up in the Spirit. Revelation 1.10 is the first one where John sees the risen Christ, and he's on the Isle of Patmos. In, John, in, in Revelation 4 and verse 2, John now is caught up in the Spirit, and he watches events unfold in Revelation 4 and 5, and his perspective is from the throne room of heaven, which would be pretty amazing, and it is amazing. Read it this afternoon. It'll be better than any football game you've ever seen. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 13, the phrase is used again. At this point, John is caught up in the Spirit, and he sees events unfold from an earthly wilderness, from the perspective of earth. And the fourth time, the fourth major vision is in Revelation 21, and the plot is really thickening at this point, or the plot is really coming to beautiful uh, fruition or a climax as he sees the new Jerusalem, and his perspective is from a mountain on the new earth. So there are these four visions in, in the Revelation, and each one of them is initiated by this phrase, he's caught up in the Spirit. And that's what he says, I, John, both your brother, fellow, compa- fellow sufferer, companion in tribulation, and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Patmos, And he says he's there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which most people believe is because he was preaching the Old Testament and knew that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Others believe it was for the purpose of giving the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which in Christian history is acknowledged to be known as the first day of the week. It's Sunday. He's in the Spirit, caught up in the Spirit to have this vision It's on the Lord's Day, and this is John, and that's where he is, and that's what he's doing. Here's the next question. What did he hear? This is storyboard, second chunk of the storyboard. First is, who is he and where is he? Second is, what does he hear? Notice what it says there. It's very interesting in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. To understand the book of Revelation, you want to have a really good working knowledge of the rest of the Bible because over and over again, though there are no direct quotations, there are probably over 500 references to Old Testament things. This would be an example of one. When God is is giving official pronouncement, there's the trumpet sound. This happens all throughout the Bible. It happens here. There's this voice of the trumpet. That's what he heard. And notice there what it says. I heard behind me the voice behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. And what's the voice saying? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see right in a book. This is the main thing. It's in verse 11, and it's also repeated in verse 19. What is he telling him to do? I want you to write this down. Write this down. It's important. Write it down. So he says, write it in a book. In a book, we're not talking about a folio book like we have since the printing press. Can you imagine when they started making books like this, 
probably pastors had to be apologetic because it wasn't a scroll and it didn't seem spiritual. It's kind of like looking up the Bible on your iPhone now. It just doesn't seem spiritual. But they had the scroll. So it's like they, they said, people would say, Jesus didn't have a Bible like that. He would never have turned pages. He had a scroll. What they would have said. Can you tell I'm trying to needle you a little bit? If you're a Luddite, I'm trying to get under your skin. How am I doing? So what did he hear? He heard a voice like a trumpet that said, write it in a book or or write a scroll. And then he said, and I want you to send it by courier, if you will, to the seven churches in Asia. And if you study the map, you can see this is kind of the route of the courier that you would normally follow through the churches of Asia. That's what he heard. What did he see? Now, this is where you have the heart of the text. And this is where it gets really amazing. What did John hear? Now he's got his back to this. What did he see then? Notice there in verse 12, it says, Then I turned, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, this is what I saw. Now this is interesting because when we get into Revelation, one of the things that people often expect is, you know, sensationalism, speculation. People write lots of sensational books about this. They make lots of money for their ministries. They speculate and, and they kind of guess. And, they, and these are books that interest people. People who love the Lord love the coming of the Lord. And so we're kind of an easy mark for this kind of thing because we're so eager for Jesus to come back and we so see events unfolding in the world that we're really, really eager to read about the coming of the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But now there's a, there's a caution and that is, and you know this, if you're a seasoned Christian, you know that over the years it's really easy to follow kind of like uh, speculation or sensationalism, and they kind of get off the rails. You know, let me just give you uh, some examples, like the blood moons, for instance. There's all the big dust up about the blood moons. Now, we're, the, the scriptures aren't really explicit about it at all. We're supposed to have some kind of timing here. We're supposed to be expecting something having to do with the blood moons. And so books are sold and messages are, are given. And there's that, the blood moons. We're in the middle of that right now. And people right now are, are making big claims and predictions. And, and the question would be, does God want us to focus on these blood moons? Because if he does, let's focus on the blood moons. And then there are those that predict that 9-11 was in, that, that, that the 9-11 tragedy, that the 9-11 attack was actually predicted and that it was described in Isaiah, for instance. There are books that talk about that. It's described and all that's, and these are kind of like, you know, they're titillating. You're like, ah, I think I might want to read that. I wonder if that's, that's true. Should we really be, you know, focusing on those kind of speculative, sensational books about maybe the, the, uh, the 9-11 attack being in the book of Isaiah, even though Isaiah was really written to Israel? And then there's uh, the, the issue about, is America Babylon? You know, books come up and, and there are parallels that are drawn. And why hasn't America service in futuristic prophecy? And is it, is, does it? Is it really, is it Babylon? Should we be reading those books and focusing on that and reading those into these passages? That's this kind of speculative or, or sensationalism. Here's an example of sensationalism. Not so long ago, somebody said in Finland, they, they drilled a hole really deep and, and they, got, they dropped a mic and they actually heard people crying out in hell. And that just spread route throughout, you know, gullible Christians, spread that all around. They, they, there is a hell, we believe that, but now they've got a mic there and they can hear the people and they have a recording. When you're laughing, you know, so that was just, that was debunked. And yet these are kinds of things that Christians, when they don't have better things to do, send around on their Facebook page. And then there is the, the whole chip implant thing, which kind of ruins your dinner when you're watching the news and somebody's talking about chip implants. 
And you immediately are kind of thinking about, you know, the end of time and an apocalyptic vision. Should we be thinking, should we be keeping an eye out for people that are trying to put chip implants in us? Should we refuse credit cards? I think all women should give up credit cards except for when they're given to the church. You know, that's just kidding about that. But yeah, should we, should we, you know, is that, that's, it's, should, does God want us to be, you know, kind of resolving that we won't take the chip? You know, I'm not making fun because on the one hand, there are people that don't care at all about the coming of the Lord. They don't think about the coming of the Lord. They don't study the Bible as if there is future prophecy in it, though there is. And this is a terrible thing. On the other hand, however, those of us who really love the Lord and are longing for his return can get down the kind of off on a rabbit trail of speculation and sensationalism. And I think I've found an answer. Then there's that whole thing of the ashes of the red heifer, which just sounds kind of cool. There are, there's the red cow. It's, it's in the world today. And, and there are people People that are putting together, you know, the, the to reestablish the temple worship in Jerusalem. You've heard all of that, and it's all it's very interesting. If you have the internet, you can spend all day, you know, speculating and reading sensational things like that. And then, of course, the lost ark. And who doesn't like that narrative? You know, the lost ark and the raiders of the lost ark and all of that. This is spectacular. The book that was written that the rapture was going to happen in 1988, and unless only part of us went, it didn't. And then there's the fellow who had a billboard right there outside our window. And he repented of this. And then he went to be with the Lord. But he said it was going to be May 21, 2011, narrow camping. And, and it's just been that way. And there are people that want us to focus on Jewish feast days and festivals, even though the Bible says they have no relevance since Jesus has come, no future relevance. So Christians aren't supposed to be dwelling on blood moons. Can I tell you, we're supposed to be dwelling on the sun of righteousness. Now, this is what I'm saying. And I know you love the Lord, and I know that you're interested in things to come, and I know that you are kind of like, you know, you have that kind of magnetic tug toward the whole thing about the chip or the ashes of the red heifer or the blood moons or the stuff that's going to come. But can I just suggest, as a pastor, you will not be able to disagree with what I'm going to tell you if you really love the Lord. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and especially verses, say, 12 through 17, give us the most spectacular, the most sensational picture that we will ever need to satisfy satisfy our desire for sensational stuff. Is anybody here more excited about blood moons than they are about our Savior Jesus Christ revealed in His glory in the heavens? Are you more excited about denying a, you know, a chip than you are about worshiping Jesus? Would you agree with me that the thing the Bible teaches is not that we should be involved in sensationalism or in speculation, but that we should be longing for the return of this one, the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. And that will satisfy all of that, you see. And so we're not to speculate, but we're told to worship, and we're told to work, and we're told to witness. We're not to speculate and be given to other kinds of sensationalism. We're told to be, in all the passages referring to the second coming and to the rapture, we are told to be hopeful, and we are told to be holy, and that's enough. So while we're really working on being hopeful and holy, we have enough to occupy ourselves until he comes. But this is the heart of the message. What do all these symbols mean? This is a symbol-laden passage. And what do all these mean? Okay, in general, you can just read it and you know it's ominous, right? You don't have to understand what every single symbol means. When you read this picture of Jesus, and he has, he's one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long garment, has a golden 
sash around his chest. His hair is white like wool. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass refined in a furnace. His voice is like the sound of many waters. He has seven stars in his right hand. He has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His countenance is shining like the sun in his strength. You don't even have to understand all of those symbols to get the idea. This is unlike any other being ever has been or ever will be. And the Bible is clearly teaching that. And you've got it right there. But, there. but these symbols do mean something. He stands amid seven golden lampstands. And they're not just golden lampstands. They are representative of churches. The Bible says so in verse 20. And the Bible says that the church, we're the light of the world. You know, and we're to be the lampstand, the light, and to make him known. And if we don't, he removes our lampstand. One of the churches in chapter 2 and verse 5 is this lampstand removed because it's not been faithful. But I want you to notice about some things about Jesus in this, the heart of this text, and it's a different slide. Let's look at the glory of Jesus and the symbols that are revealed. He's, he's, he's revealed in eternity. He's one like the Son of Man. This is a technical phrase. It isn't just a phrase that you throw away. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's the picture of the Ancient of Days. If we were to take time to do it, we could parallel the Daniel chapter 7 passage and all that it says about the Ancient of Days. This, uh, and, and we could parallel this passage, and there are points of congruity, six or eight of them, right across this exact. This is, of all the things that Jesus liked to be called in the Gospels, the number one thing he liked to be called was the Son of Man. So, God in human form. This is what he wanted to emphasize. And what is this God like? He's a God of eternity. That's the idea there. The Gospels are a picture of Jesus in his humiliation. This is a picture of Jesus in his glory. And in his glory, he is the Ancient of Days. Parallel in all points to Daniel's vision, it's showing that he is, among other things, eternal. Get it? Jesus Christ Never had a beginning. He will never have an end. No one else has ever been or ever will be like him. There is no other God anywhere on earth to worship. But Jesus Christ, he's eternal. That will help you get your priorities right. He also shows the dignity of this one, Jesus. The, the picture of the glory of Jesus is dignity. He's clothed with a long garment. The idea there being like official clothing like a priest or like a magistrate. He has the golden sash, which is like a priest or like a magistrate. It's official. It's dignified. It's just the dignity of Jesus, the eternal, glorious dignity. And his majesty girded about the chest with a golden band. And it shows his deity. His hair is white. And the scriptures say his, the head and his hair are white, just like the Ancient of Days indicative of his deity and his omniscience and judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And you're going to understand more of this as you see what he does, what he says to each of the seven churches. He looks at each of the seven churches with complete, absolute discernment. With eyes of fire, he burns right through all the extraneous, external stuff. He knows exactly what's in the heart and motives of every person and of every church. This is the glory of of Jesus. He's omniscient in his judgment. So he's eternal and dignified, majestic. He's deity, omniscient in his judgment. His sovereignty, his feet like brass refined in the furnace. He's, um, uh, no one can defeat him. His absolute sovereign power over every opponent. And there's more to these things. These are just symbolic. He's superiority. And he has a voice like many waters. This is a picture of what John saw of Jesus in his glory, what God revealed to John. Okay, let's back up. Here's John, brother martyred, 
friends martyred, churches under pressure, he's oppressed, government's coming down on the churches, he has every reason to be to be to need courage, to be tempted to compromise, and Jesus shows up with a voice of the trumpet and shows him this picture of Jesus, who's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and omniscient and dignified and majestic and all-powerful and glorious. And this is an interesting one here. He's vigilant. He has the stars, which are, we're going to find out later, they are the messengers to the churches. These are in his right hand. He's walking among the lampstands, which are the churches. And he has authority. The sharp sword comes out of his mouth, symbolically saying, you know, when Jesus says something, it happens. When he tells you to, when, when, when he speaks, it happens. He spoke the world into existence, and whatever he says happens. And it's a sword there, of the word of, 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 symbolic of, of the word of God, this authority. And then, obviously, and this is kind of all inclusive, his glory. It says then, his countenance shining like the sun in strength. Okay, have you ever, ever read of anybody like that before? Do you know anybody like that? Now, think about your life right now the decisions that you're going to make, the fears that you have, the opponents you have, the circumstances of your life, and, 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 and you can be a little bit like John on the craggy Isle of Patmos thinking, hmm, this isn't going very well right now. They killed my brother. They killed my friends. They persecuted the churches that I spent my life pouring into. Everybody who's got allegiance to Jesus is under oppression. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, makes a sound like a trumpet, and shows himself like this, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lord of glory. That will help you a lot in your life. It will help you a lot if you... This is real. This is who Jesus really is. This isn't make-believe. This isn't a comic strip. This is who Jesus really is. That will help you a lot in your life. You get, you get your life oriented properly when you see the glory of the Son of Man. You, you have the courage that you need when you have a vision of the glory of the Son of Man. You'll have the conviction that you need when you have a vision of the glory of the Son of Man. Your decisions and your priorities will be absolutely right when you really get a picture in your mind of a vision of the glory of the Son of Man. When, when He's revealed to your deepest heart in all that He is, you see what I'm saying? It's going to make the other stuff that tempts you, it's going to, be, it's going to weaken the other things that tempt you. This is what, of all things, we need, a vision of the glory of the Son of Man. That's in answer to the question, what did he see? Wow, that was quite a vision. Here's question number four. What did he do? You know what he did, right? Look at chapter 17 and verse 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is almost a universal response to a vision of the glory of God. Bang, on your face, like you're dead. It's happened over and over in the Bible. When people had a vision of God like this, they didn't like, hey, fist pump. You know, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They, didn't, they weren't chatty or they weren't casual, and nor should we be. The, he fell. This is the Apostle John in his season, way up in years. He's not a novice. He's not a plebe. He's one who knows God. He's walked with God. When he sees God revealed in his glory, it's bang. He falls down like he's dead. What did he do? He fell down like he was dead. And then, question number five, what did Jesus do and say? This is beautiful. Look in the second part of verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me. He said to me, don't be afraid. I am, the, there it is again, I am the first and the last. 
He who lives, who was dead, who is this, right? He who lives, who was dead, we know who this is, and is alive, I'm alive. And he's not just alive, but what does he say? I'm alive what? Alive unlike other people are alive, forevermore alive, amen. And I, beyond this, I own the keys to death and hell, to death and the grave. This would be the, like the great fear that would be hanging over the heads of the people. Are they going to kill me? Are they going to oppress me? Are they going to take what's mine? He says, wait a minute. I was dead. I'm alive. I was, and I am, and I will be, and I was dead, and I'm alive. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. I decide who lives and who dies. I am him. These are absolutely exclusive claims that Jesus makes, and we shouldn't be shy about making those same claims about Jesus Christ in our pluralistic, God-hating pagan age that we live in, Jesus puts his hands on him and he comforts him. And then in verse 19, what does he say to him? He says, write these things. Remember what it says, which you've seen. This is kind of past things which are present, things which will take place after this that we agree that's kind of an outline of Revelation. We see it as much of it as future because of what it says right there. He said that in verse 11. He says it again in verse 19. I want you to write it down. Aren't you glad he did? There is this transmission that's really clear in Revelation, and that is this is a message that came from God, and it was given to Jesus because it was his birthright, his inheritance. He took that. He gave the message to John. He gave the message to angel to John, to angel to John, from John to the messengers, from the messengers to the churches, to the churches to us. Jesus, who walks among the candlesticks of the churches with the messengers of the churches of the right hands, has something to say to the churches today. He's an absolute authority over them. What did it mean? What, was, what did all this mean? Well, before we go, let's talk about these angels of the seven churches there. It says, it says to the angels of the seven churches, and you kind of would think, oh, who is that? Or what is that? Jesus has messengers in his right hand. These are the stars, the angels messengers there. Notice what it says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, verse 20, in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the word is messengers of the seven churches. So he's among the candlesticks which are the churches, and he has the messengers in his right hand. So he says there are messengers. Who are these messengers? Now some have said, and there's some disagreement on this, some have said, well, these are angels. The word that's used here is messengers, and angels are used frequently throughout. There's a ton of uses of angels throughout Revelation, so it's a credible suggestion to say, well, these are angels. But here's why I would suggest they're not. Here's two reasons, two powerful reasons why I would suggest, no, they're not angels, but they're, but they're human messengers to met churches, and here's two reasons why. One is because the, 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 the transmission of the, of the message or the vision is clarified from God to Jesus to the angel to John to the messengers. And this kind of goes, would go back up the chain, back to angels. The second reason, in other words, I don't think that's the way, that, that's the, the flow of the text is for the message to go from God through these agencies to the churches, through the messengers of the churches, which there were messengers, obviously, that took the message to the churches, human messengers. The also that what happens is that we're not done. We get to verse 20, it's where we're stopping today, but it launches into these seven letters to these seven churches. And what's really fascinating is when you read each of the seven letters to the churches, it starts out with something that you would find in verses 12 through 20 or something about who Jesus is. So Jesus knows what every single church needs 
that he is. Does that make sense? And so when he introduces himself to that letter to the church, he says, this is what's true about me. And he pulls material there out of that vision that we just read today. This is the part about me that you need. And then he gives them a message. All of all of six of the seven, he tells them to repent. And you don't tell angels, to, and the angels are included in that. You don't tell angels to repent. Now, the scriptures teach that after the fall, that, that, that the angels aren't seen as objects of the redemptive work of Christ. To, and so I don't believe those are angels, but those are human messengers. But you could argue with me, and that would be okay. You'd just probably have to buy me coffee like I usually say. But it's a fascinating thing to see. What did it mean? Now, this is interesting. What did it mean? It was really clear. Obviously, it's, it's clear what it meant. What was God's message to the original audience, which is going to be these churches? Jesus is alive. <laughs> He's powerful. He's glorious. He's among the churches. He's concerning himself with the churches. He has defeated death. The churches are expected to radiate light. They are accountable to Christ. They will answer to Christ. He has a message for them, and he has every right to give it. And the message of the glorious, glorious risen Christ to the churches is that it's a message of comfort, it's a message of conviction, and it's a message of courage. Are you getting this? So in other words, when you ask, like, why did he write that? Because the churches needed to be convicted. Because the churches needed to be comforted. Because the churches needed to be encouraged. So what did he give them when he saw that they needed to be comforted and convicted and encouraged? What did he give them? What did God say you need most of all? If you need to be convicted of your sin and encouraged when you're afraid, what is the one thing that you need? You need a vision of the exalted, glorious Jesus Christ. That's all that you need. And that's what you need. That gets us to, that was question six, and that gets us to question seven. What does it mean to us? It's really not hard to see what it means to us. What is it that you need more than anything else right now in your life? A vision of the exalted, glorious Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus the way he really is is what you and I need for whatever it is that we face. You say, you don't understand, Pastor, I got issues in my business. Hey, Jesus is walking among the candlesticks with the stars in his right hand. He cares about churches and people in churches. He cares about whatever your burden with your business or your retirement or your 401k or who you're going to date or not date, uh, what kind of music you're going to listen to or not listen to, where you're going to go, what your schedule is going to be like, how you're going to spend your money. If you get a picture of the exalted Christ, the vision of Christ in your heart, that's really all that you need. For, for instance, are you ever tempted to idolatry? Are you ever tempted to kind of worship something you shouldn't be worshiping? Something God made instead of God? Of course you are. If you didn't have a temptation to idolatry, you would never sin. We sin when we put something else in the place of God. We sin when we don't see how beautiful God is. We sin when we don't see how satisfying God is. We sin when we don't see how glorious Jesus is. Wouldn't it help us a lot if we just kept before us a vision of Christ? Because if we kept before us a vision of Christ like we have right here, we wouldn't need sensationalism. We wouldn't need speculation. It would help us with our sin and our temptation and our decisions. We, hey, if this Jesus that we have a picture of here like walks into our life and we see him, how in the world can you not fall at his feet in absolute obedience to him and do what he says? And why wouldn't you want to? Well, we just, that's all we really need. Can you see that's what you really need? And then when you see that, then everything that falls from his hands becomes a gift. Even, even his frowning providence becomes a gift. Why are you allowing this to happen to me, Lord? Because I know you're a good God and that you have good for me. 
and I want to receive this from you as good. I had a, did a wedding uh, this summer, just about a, a little over a month ago. It was just beautiful. A young lady that was in a, a former church had asked me to come, and, and the, the wedding venue was really beautiful. It was on a lake, and, uh, and there was a big white uh, colonial lodge up behind the, where the wedding party was all set up. There were all those white chairs, and there was a trellis and flowers and a beautiful music, and everyone was at their best. Everyone was dressed up. She was a beautiful bride. All the bridesmaids were dressed beautifully, and the fellows were handsome. And her husband, the fellow she was going to marry, was uh, on active duty, and so he was there in his uniform. It was a perfect summer night. And so I stood in front of all the group that was assembled there, and then I watched the men kind of stride in, and they were fellow in his uniform, and the fellow's in the prime of their life, and the lineup over here, that joyful look on their face, and then all the aunts and uncles and family were kind of talking amongst one another, and then things kind of got quiet, and there was some beautiful music that began to play. I don't remember what it was, just beautiful music, and the, the girls started kind of floating into place. Girls in their youth and in their beauty all walking slowly down the aisle. There they came, and then the music stopped. And then the bride appeared. She was so pretty. Music stopped and a new song started. It was an odd song. I'd never heard it at a wedding before. <laughs> you know what it was? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my vision. Here came the bride to be thou my vision. When I marry kids, I have my doubts about them. When we live in a really rough world, that really tends to rough us up. And, you know, they're walking down the aisle, like, almost kind of relaxed and taking vows. They don't have any idea the difficulties that they're going to face, the hardships that they're going to have, the heartaches that they're going to have to weather, the disappointments that are going to come, the demonic resistance against what they're trying to do. But I did know this one thing. And as that bride walked down the aisle, I prayed in my heart, Oh God, let that be true about these kids. Because if they have a vision of who Jesus really is, and they keep a vision of who Jesus really is in front of their eyes, they're going to be okay. And so are you. Let's sing together before we go home.